You're listening to the Transformative Podcast, brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Transformative Podcast with me, Yanis Panayotidis. I'm Scientific Director of RETSET, the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna, where we study economic, social and cultural transformations on a European and global scale. I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Quinn Slobodian, who is Associate Professor of History at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. Hi, Quinn. Hi, nice to be here. Quinn has written an excellent book on the intellectual history of neoliberalism. In the following discussion, we will largely focus on this book, which was also released in German, by the way, by Surkamp Publishers in 2019. So it's receiving quite a bit of attention internationally also. Quinn, your book is called Globalists. Who are they and What defines their thinking? Well, I chose that term for the title of the book because the real intention that I had was to kind of flip the intellectual history of neoliberalism on its head. But what we had so far as a kind of a narrative of neoliberal history in the 20th century was the kind of movement from the space of the nation eventually up to the space of the world. So if one looks at their works by people like David Harvey or Naomi Klein or Wendy Brown, or even Phil Murawski and Dieter Pleva, you'll see this situation whereby neoliberalism was, was used in the sort of laboratory of Pinochet's Chile in the 1970s, was then later uh, taken up by Margaret Thatcher in the UK, Ronald Reagan in the US, and only then in the 1990s was sort of globalized through the institutions of things like the World Bank and the IMF, and eventually the WTO. My history sort of flips this by pointing out that already in the 1930s, people who called themselves neoliberal in the 1930s were especially interested in restoring the global economic interdependence that they feel like had been destroyed by the First World War. So it makes no sense to actually think about neoliberalism at a national scale, because the neoliberal mentality and their sort of normative vision of how political economy should work was always about the global scale. It was always about the international division of labor, free trade, free movement of capital. So in that sense, I wanted to use this term globalist to emphasize that they were thinking about the world as the space of their own normative political economy and the place where their policies would hopefully unfold. You deal with the Geneva School of Liberals, as you call them. Um, so people like Hayek and uh, people like Habala and Wilhelm Röpke and others who are I would think a bit less known in the history of neoliberalism. So most people would first associate neoliberalism rather with the Chicago school, with Milton Friedman and friends. So why did you opt for the focus that you did? And who do you think mattered more in the end, Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman? So my book begins instead of in the United States in the ashes of the Habsburg Empire, because this, the, the case of something like the rented remnant that was Austria after the dismemberment of the Habsburg Empire presented a much more stark case where there was no option of sort of closing the walls and producing a kind of protected economic self-sufficient zone. Rather, the turn to the world economy was a kind of urgent necessity. So in that sense, I think that a country like post-First World War Austria actually prefigured many of the problems that 
post-colonial states globally would encounter in the 1960s and 70s. There's many similarities between the predicament of a small country like you know, Lesotho or Vanuatu or Botswana in the 1970s and 80s and you know, Vienna, the grand old Vienna in the 1920s. So my intention to relocate the story to Europe rather than the US was to emphasize that it was really the rest of the world beyond the, the economic hegemon of America that was confronted with this problem of, you know, compete or die, plug into the world economy or perish. It was much more acute there. So the question of who was more influential, Hayek or Friedman, I think one would probably have to say Friedman because of the direct ways that some of his thinking, especially around the priority of shareholder value over stakeholder value and his arguments in favor ultimately of monopoly and against antitrust became integrated into American law and American political economy. Hayek um, and the Austrians that I study in my book are, are though perhaps more useful as a kind of a lens with which to see the challenges of global economic governance across the 20th century beyond the United States. Even if you might concede that Friedman might have been inf more influential in the end, you do argue, you also argue in your book that um, the Hayekian school of thought did have a substantial impact on certain policies also, on certain, um, especially on a global scheme. So in your narrative, the globalists, they had their moment of triumph with the foundation of the World Trade Organization, in particular in 1995, which very much was created along the lines of their ideas. What I was wondering, though, when I, when I read about this, um, perhaps because um, in this research center here, we focus so much on 1989, how did the globalists think about 1989? So didn't the triumph over communism and the end of history matter to them at all? Well, I think one of the interesting things about reading this school of political economic thinkers is they were often rather clear-eyed about who actually had power and who didn't. So someone like Herbert Giersch, for example, who has been described as Germany's Milton Friedman had a similar sort of status, was already talking in the 1970s about how the Cold War was over. And why was the Cold War over? Because now Eastern Bloc countries were already becoming reliant on taking out large loans from Western banks, making themselves dependent on global markets for oil, for example. Soviet Union needed to sell oil to keep to bring hard currency reserves in. So there was a way in which the Eastern, the Eastern European um, political economic option was never really taken seriously as a counter model by neoliberals. They saw the, the real enemy, so to speak, or the real competitor was within their own Western world, was this, the social democracy of sort of the mixed economy that combined aspects of capitalism with redistribution, with high levels of taxation and social services. This is what they saw as the kind of existential threat. So it wasn't until that sort of beast could be slain that they could actually celebrate. As it turns out, they felt like that particular beast outlived the end of the Cold War. So all of the writing in the 1990s is actually about how the war, the Cold War is over, but you know, Leviathan lives on, the socialist Leviathan lives on in high levels of state spending. Now attention to things like global warming and climate change, attention to minority rights, civil rights. So there was no real moment of triumph for the, the neoliberal thinkers. And certainly they don't feel in a triumphal mood right now. The WTO was a, a passing victory of sort of a Pyrrhic victory in the sense that 
it was almost immediately confronted with legitimacy problems, both through protests in the streets, through the discontent of poorer nations, and then eventually through the discontent of richer nations who feel like the WTO arrangement has actually given preferential treatment to a country like China, which has now become a, you know, a, a serious um, existential threat in the minds of policymakers in the EU and the United States. You mentioned the Pyrrhic victory of the WTO, um, which, of course, in a sense, prefigured a much greater turn against globalism and in favor of, of, of nationalism, perhaps, that we're witnessing today, talking about Trump, talking about Brexit. So as my last question, I would like, like to ask you, seen from today's perspective, is neoliberal globalism dead? I think it is closer to death than it's been for decades. I think that my thinking on this has evolved. So with in 2016, I think there were a lot of premature obituaries for neoliberalism, right? So the idea that Trump and Brexit, as you say, represented the death of neoliberalism, I think was simply wrong in the sense that the initial moves of Trump was to use trade policy to gain greater access to Chinese markets and sometimes to do some very Geneva School-like interventions and, you know, sending the tentacles of legal oversight even deeper into Chinese territory, so to speak. The goal of Brexit was not to close themselves off into an autarkic space, but to free themselves under WT rules, WTO rules to trade with the rest of the world in their minds. So I doubt that 2016 itself represented the kind of death blow of neoliberalism uh, to neoliberal globalism. But since then, in the intervening four years now, especially with the, the compounding effect of the pandemic, I think that it has now the common sense has changed. So the, co the common sense is no longer that free trade is the correct policy choice under most circumstances. In fact, I think the default option is against free trade now. And we can see this even um, in the statements of the incoming US trade representative for Biden, who has signaled not at all that she's going to reverse Trump's trade policy. And in fact, they're going to take it slowly. They're going to leave tariffs on China. And the EU has followed suit, right? So the EU European Union, I think, also agrees that there needs to be a kind of re-territorialization of supply chains, an attention to resilience around especially issues like green technologies, batteries, chips, pharmaceuticals, in preparation for future shocks of the kind that we've suffered with the coronavirus. So I think that 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 moment in the mid 90s when globalization was seen as something as natural as the changing of the seasons that was you know foolish to try to stand in the way of and one could only adapt we're not there anymore and so in that sense i think that because um that presumption about the way the world works has been um, upended then i think you can say that the kind of that the hegemony of neoliberal globalism as a kind of intellectual frame has been cracked quite severely and we are now, I think, in the process of figuring out what might come next. Quinn Slobodian, thank you very much for being with us today. It's goodbye for today. Also from me, Yanis Panayotidis at uh, Rezet, the Research Center for the History of Transformations. Tune in next time for a talk with Czech historian Michal Kopeczek. <laughs>